Support for AHLA comes from FTI Consulting. The FTI Consulting Regulatory Solutions Team uses an integrated approach to best address the unique needs of each of their clients. They emphasize cross-collaboration amongst their multidisciplinary group of industry experience, compliance, and investigative professionals to bring the right mix of experience and skills to bear on each assignment. FTI Consulting also works with virtually every segment of the healthcare and life sciences industry to discern innovative solutions that optimize performance in the short term and prepare for future strategic, operational, financial, and legal challenges. For more information, go to www.fticonsulting.com. Hi, this is Charles Overstreet with FTI Consulting. I'm lucky today to have Dr. Marty McCrary on the phone. Many of you heard Dr. McCrary during our annual meeting. He was the keynote speaker. Very interesting and provocative discussions, and from that came a few questions. Uh, Dr. McCrary, if you don't mind, uh, can I dive in and talk with you on a few questions that came up from the audience? Of course. Great to be with you, Charles. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, one of the questions came up was regarding the importance of public health. Given where we are now in the pandemic, I think this is pretty uh, important and very appropriate for where we are today. And Dr. McCurry, Marty, what portion of preventive medicine could fall into the realm of public health and be supported by public health budgets? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because more and more students now going into medicine are saying, I want to get a master's in public health for an additional year. And many of us said, why is this not a standard part of the medical degree? Why is it that learning about the health of the public and prevention and some of the major issues we face like pandemics, why are these things that are seen as peripheral topics that are really central? And if you think about everything we do in medicine, there is a better public health strategy, whether it's my own field of cancer care or heart disease or inflammatory conditions like arthritis or injury. Um, there are areas of medicine that have been un unexplored, underfunded, underappreciated, and underrecognized, and those are the issues of food as medicine and the environmental exposures that cause skin rashes and lung disease and a whole host of other problems. Can we talk about physical therapy and using ice more liberally for back pain than just surgery and opioids? This is what a new generation of healthcare providers are talking about. And this is what the futuristic healthcare systems now are actively engaged in. Now they gotta fight the billing system, right? Because the billing system says, look, you're, you know, your hamster's on a wheel and we're just measuring the, the velocity of how much energy you're producing. And pretty much, you know, when when there's an underperformance, the, the providers are told you gotta work harder, right? And now the doctors are saying, we wanna work smarter, not just harder. So all of the stuff that you're referring to, um, you know, why are we learning what contact tracing is for the first time with the pandemic, right? These are sort of the nuts and bolts of health. And I think when we talk about um, healthcare, we think of a reactionary system. 
But when we think about the health of the public or the underlying root causes of, of issues that create problems with health, now we're actually getting to the exciting thing. And I think that's what's rejuvenating a lot of medical centers right now. They're saying, we want to assume responsibility for a population. We don't want to have to you know, be in this coding, billing, throughput cycle that the patients don't like and we doctors don't really like a lot of times. We want to have freedom and we want to have the liberty to custom tailor treatments to individuals. Let us do that. And that's some of the, the new stuff that uh, we had talked about, the new Medicare Advantage plans, relationship-based medicine. Well, how do we, you know, link to this, you know, incentivize lifestyle changes? You know, the question really was around social determinants of health, but now, you know, it would be a good lifestyle change, I think, if some folks all wore masks as we uh, go through this. But uh, how do we incentivize lifestyle changes through public health? <laughs> yeah, if we if we thought economically about some of these behaviors, it's amazing to think what the possibilities are. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're a country that values personal liberty and sometimes individual rights over community rights, even though that encroaches on the health of the public sometimes. And we've seen that with personal behavior during the COVID pandemic, right? The sense of I can do whatever I want in public around other people. And other people saying, no, we have laws that govern seatbelts and, and, and we, we need things that are reasonable with broad consensus with the pandemic. So I think right now we're at, we're at a difficult position where we're actually saying, how can we approach this problem in a way that makes sense and is not too onerous, but serves a broader purpose? Because if we look at all of healthcare, all of the healthcare we deliver in the United States, that entire half of federal spending that goes to healthcare, the eighth of the economy on medical services and the fee-for-service cogwheel, most of it stems from behavioral problems. Most of it. The most common cause of death in the United States is heart disease. The most common known cause of heart disease is smoking and inflammation and obesity and the metabolic syndrome and cholesterol. Number two cause of death in the United States, cancer. Number one known cause of cancer, smoking. Number two, other environmental exposures. Um, so when we look at the universe of healthcare we're delivering, it gets exciting when we can take a step back from the direct interface with the patient and say, let's look at the, the drivers of health. And as we know, the biggest driver of health status in the United States is economic status, sad to say, but it is economic status, right? So when people are struggling financially, they're struggling with their health. And it's just the way that the systems are aligned. It's just the way that cheaper foods are worse foods and, and so on down the line. I agree with you. And, you know, some of this is linked to the new things that are, I know, on the mind of a number of our clients, the price transparency uh, that's being mandated. Can you expand on your thoughts about the value of PBMs and how they might uh, or might not contribute to increasing health care costs? Yeah, there are assumptions that we are now challenging. For example, we've assumed that employers are shopping for health care on an open market that um, is is transparent enough for them to make 
sound decisions or that that market is competitive. The reality is it's not competitive. And the reason it's not competitive is because the way a, a PBM or pharmacy benefit manager bills an employer for their services is to send them a report at the end of the year saying, here are all the medications your employees took. Here's all the prices. Here's some artificial crazy discounts that we're applying because we're your friend. And they look at some big number at the end. How do you compare that? Is there another business with the same population of employees with the same comorbidity case mix? No. Uh, and it's very difficult for employers to compare lists of 1,000 or 5,000 medications with different frequencies, biosimilars, names, dosages. You, you don't even know what people are getting swapped out for by the PBM. So what we have is this fog that prevents employers from shopping responsibly. So what they do is they rely on their benefits advisor or consultant or AKA broker. And what we learned from our research is that the brokers are getting paid a major lump sum of money on the back end from the companies that they sell. So you're a big PBM company, and a broker sells your product, you're paying them on the back end, $80,000, $100,000, $150,000. And then when that contract comes up for renewal, it's, you know, the, the PBM can say, keep this employer, keep this car dealership with us, and we're going to pay you a retention bonus. Well, it's just, it does not feed a competitive marketplace. And there's a generation of brokers that, are, that now are saying, look, we're sick of playing in this uh, system. We didn't go into this for this reason. Um, we didn't design this system. We inherited it. We're going to disclose 100% of those payments on the back end. For a company of 2,000 employees, those total payments on the back end can total a million dollars. I mean, it, some brokers could actually pay employers to be their broker and still make a big, hefty profit just from the back end stuff. So we are seeing a generation, again, led by young people who, as you know, if you have kids, have very little tolerance for BS, and they want to be a part of something larger than themselves as a generational value, right? They want, they, they want to be a part of some greater purpose in their work. And so we're, we are seeing some reforms now and some good efforts, and I've um, worked with some employers now to say, hey, let's start talking about direct contracting with your local hospital and the pharmacy that the hospital runs and we are seeing some exciting new things. In the price transparency space, I'm involved in one company called Sesame Care. Again, trying to create an online marketplace for medical services. Some hospitals are getting really good business from this uh, web-based service, uh, sending patients their way because it's an open and honest marketplace. Thank you. Did you see any issues with the transparency or with the pricing where it could have the opposite effect of even fostering collusion? Or do you think that's just something that's really going to, you know, increase competition or decrease it? In terms of the PBM and the health insurance space? Yes. Yeah, it's, um, I think the more transparency, the better. There have been arguments that have been made that if you make everything transparent, you'll confuse people, and therefore it'll be counterproductive. Those arguments have actually been made. And 
I think right now there's enough frustration with the middle industry of healthcare that employers are taking the lead and they're saying, can we just put all this stuff aside, all the the, the middle insurance, um, claims processing, PBM, wellness, anti-fraud programs, all that stuff that we pay for as an employer. And can we just go to the community hospital that we know, trust, and love and do a direct contract? And with those direct contracts, you really are bypassing a giant industry and creating, in my opinion, more local accountability. And it reminds me of growing up in central Pennsylvania at Danville, where Geisinger was a small community hospital at the time. It's now large. But if there was an issue, we all saw the CEO of the hospital in the grocery store. And the docs would have no problem talking to the CEO when there was an issue. And the CEO was very responsive. And it was exactly what people love about um, many workplaces is this sort of um, dialogue, the relationship between leadership and those on the front lines. And that is something that's beautiful. It exists all across the country. We see it all the time. And that really all is, is promoted when we have fewer of these middle layers for an employer, say, to get health care from their hospital. So it's exciting. I love direct contracting with hospitals. I think the hospitals love it. I think the employers are very happy with it. And we save ourselves a lot of the sort of the black hole in the middle where the money goes. Nobody can explain where it goes. So do you see, I know from our client base, a lot of hospitals or health systems are kind of maybe worried or hesitant to publish prices and things. Do you think that uh, that, that worry is misplaced or you could actually help them? I think the worry is legitimate only because the insurance companies are basically threatening hospitals. They're saying, we don't want you to do this because if you start doing that, it's going to undermine the secret discount that we have. So I, I have yet to meet somebody at a hospital who actually says on the provider side, it's not a good idea for us to show prices. And what, what, what I hear is the opposite. I hear we'd like to show prices, but our insurers are going to be very upset. Or I hear that we'd like to show prices, but we've the market's never required it. And it takes work. It takes, you actually have to itemize services in a way that we've never done. And we can do that work. But remember, we're being asked to do 50 other things, including all these new regulatory requirements and reporting into collaboratives. So we just, you know, we need time, energy, and resources to do that work to itemize. Now, some of that's being driven by a poll. The market is saying, hey, we're inviting you to post prices for a select group of services, bundled orthopedic procedures, for example. And if you put those on the open market, um, there are folks out there who will bring employers to you or send patient patients your way. So that is, that is actually sort of the carrot that's driving some of this. But I know, like, I think hospitals are run by terrific people who intend and mean good. Nobody goes to work for a hospital because they think this is going to be a great way for me to make a lot of money. People go to work for a hospital because they believe in the mission of a hospital. All of us in healthcare are united around a sense of working 
for a larger purpose of having compassion on those in need. That's why there's tremendous pride among people that work in a hospital. They, they intend and want to do good, but we've all inherited this system that doesn't always make sense where we're expected to do certain things. And one of those things is having a gun to our head by a payer that says, hey, we're gonna give you, send you patients, but we want this discount and you can't tell anybody what this discount is. So from a regulatory standpoint, we've said, can we reset that playing field? And when, when I was involved in that um, uh, regulatory change, I had hospitals all over the country reaching out telling me, hey, I know the hospital association is um, not supporting this because it's going to be more work, but don't, don't quote me, and I'm not going on record here, but this is exactly what we need. And so I think you're going to see this new normal, just like we had with nutrition labels. All the food industry companies had said when nutrition labels were being discussed that this was going to be work, an unfunded mandate, there's going to be mass layoffs of, of workers in the food industry, food prices were going to spike, they unified in, a, in opposing it, but it turns out it wasn't the individuals or the individual food companies, it was the trade association, and they simply, you know, put out the, the you know, the, the loud bark. Well, guess what? We got nutrition labels, and we have a whole new marketplace where the playing field has been reset around things that matter. And now we have informed patients and we have people making better decisions and we're educating folks on sodium and sugar and other things. And so there are certain ways to reset a playing field that may not be comfortable initially, but I think have tremendous implications for the broader public. That makes perfect sense. Uh, thank you. Last thing is on uh, kind of appropriateness of care. Is it affected by where the care may be? If you're in a small town with a private practitioner versus, you know, a larger town or a more comprehensive HMO that you may belong to, or you might be in a high-tech practice in an urban area, is there uh, a propensity to provide more diagnostic tests and procedures when the, the practitioner and the patient are more access to that or easier access? Marty? <laughs> you know, our research shows that some of the patterns of excessive care have no rhyme or reason. They have no geographic association. There's no uh, profile of individual physician or provider institution that you can um, create that is more likely to engage in this. There were some minor associations when a physician owns their own surgery center or pathology lab. We saw more utilization of things like that. That's been well documented. But by and large, most doctors do the right thing or always try to. And what we've seen is that when we survey doctors around the country and ask them, and this was sort of the basis for writing the book, Unaccountable, when we ask them, do you know of a local physician who is in practice who should not be in practice and um, represent a risk to the community. It turns out that almost everybody knows of somebody. Um, and the question is, what do we do about those individuals? 
And there's a lot of things we as a profession can do to improve quality across the board, really increasing the reliability of quality care, but there's not a lot of good vehicles to do it. So what we've decided to do is let's talk about these doctors who are outliers, not as bad doctors, but as doctors who need help. And let's reach out to them. And what we've seen is that when people, a peer reaches out to another peer who is independent from the local politics of a regional practice and referral pattern base, that is somebody from a, the, a national organization in that specialty, a like-minded, like specialist, and says, hey, I saw on the data you showed up as a high utilizer in this certain practice pattern. I'm happy to chat with you about it, that people do their best to try to improve. And there may be patterns where people are gaming the system or doing things for billing purposes, but by and large, when there's some transparency created with that peer-to-peer -peer collegiality, when there's civility in reaching out, we do see some tremendous improvement. So uh, my thought is, let's try to be positive. Right. There's enough depressing stuff going on in healthcare, right? There's there's enough, you know, cracks in the system. And, and part of it is just Charles, science has exploded faster than we have been able to coordinate all the different new subcategories of care. Right. When I was in medical school, we had roughly 82 specialties in medicine. Now there are well over two thousand. Okay. Our gastrointestinal, uh, our, our GI department, gastroenterology department at Johns Hopkins has 12 different specialties in that department, about 80 faculty in 12 different areas, hepatology and esophagus uh, disease and ultrasound of the pancreas. And so GI is not GI anymore. And when you have that many different skill sets, when you have that many incredible, amazing doctors who are so focused on one problem that they get really good at it, of course, you need to increase your coordination of care proportional to the growth of the number of subfields of medicine. There's never been funding for that, right? There's never been a Medicare adjustment to say, you're providing 500 services we're gonna give you a bonus just to coordinate care. And what you have is you have people showing up at the hospital who are just saying, who, how do I get my doctors to talk to each other? Or does this doctor know that the other doctor wants to do this? And you have these very real experiences from people who sometimes work at the hospital. And you, we try to do our best to really deliver care that we would want for our own mother or father. But sometimes we get frustrated saying, the system is not set up for this much scientific knowledge and this much hyper-specialization in the hospital. So we've got to go the extra distance ourselves. I mean, I met some guy in the, in the cafeteria, Charles. Uh, I just saw ophthalmology on his white coat and we were chatting. And I asked him, so is there an area of ophthalmology that you specialize in, assuming that pretty much everyone at Johns Hopkins has a subspecialty? And he said, yeah, he exclusively specializes in the choroid. Okay, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I have no idea what that organ or part of the eye is. 
And that's his entire life. Okay. I don't know if I was sleeping in medical school or what, but that is the level of scientific. So when people like to blame individuals or blame hospitals because they had a bad experience, I remind them that we live in an unprecedented area where we have seen scientific expertise mature down um, paths that provide spectacular care, but we've not been able to keep up with the coordination of care as efficiently as we have, because we haven't been funded for it. So all that to say, um, it is an exciting time right now in medicine, but many of, many of us have been um, uh, sort of um, very, very much uh, comforted in seeing a whole new movement of people in, in healthcare say, we want to take this on and this piece of the problem, coordination, care management, diabetes care, uh, patients with renal insufficiency before they need dialysis. We want to just focus on this one problem. And that's where we're seeing these innovators and this incredible disease management that I refer to uh, globally as relationship-based management. And it's really exciting. And it's just, I didn't think, think we'd see it in our lifetime, but we are. We're seeing incredible innovation right now. No, I agree with you 100%. You bring back some memories when I was a student in the mid-80s looking at the Graduate Medical uh, Education National Advisory Committee. The number of specialties or subspecialties were a few dozen, and I did a project on well, what would be the need moving forward. I did it today, and that might be a dissertational analysis and not an undergraduate <laughs> project. <laughs> well, you've seen it all, Charles, between your time in the military and working at Grady and um, doing your fellowship at, at Emory, and now, of course, all your work with FTI. It's its really an incredible, it's an honor to speak with you. you you've seen it all, I'm sure, so it's, well, uh, I'm not you know sure exactly what I'm talking about. Raising five girls, I think, taught me more than anything, Marty. <laughs> but uh, I will uh, thank you for your time and your candor. Uh, it was great to hear you speak uh, during our virtual meeting. Uh, a lot of kudos I heard back uh, from Arian, and just uh, wish you all the best moving forward. And I'll see if we can all get through the pandemic and get back to what was a semblance of normal. But maybe we learned something from this that helps everyone. Great. Well, we are hearing some good news right now on the numbers in the pandemic. So hopefully there's an end in sight. Charles, pleasure talking with you as always. And thanks for having me and for the uh, AHLA. I love you guys. So thanks again for having me at the conference this year. No, we're, uh, like I said, we're very proud to have been uh, sponsor of the keynote speaker now for quite some time, and we look forward to next year. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you, Marty.